0: All right, Acts four twenty-three through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Let me pray for you, Trevor. Father, thank you for this morning that we get to gather, we get to hear your word taught, we get to pursue you. I pray that you would speak through Trevor this morning, help us to understand this passage more deeply, help us to understand what it means in our lives, that we wouldn't just come here and hear words and feel inspired and, and go home and forget about it. I pray you'd help us to know you more deeply, love you more deeply, and want to be on mission with you. Pray that this would affect our lives, that this would lead us to uh, living out as you call us to live. Thank you, Jesus, we love you, amen.
1: Amen. Jason, thanks for hosting and inviting me up. Good morning, everybody, my name's Trevor, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, That video that we did show was supposed to have dialogue, not sure what happened there, Uh, but one thing I was amazed by, you know, I have watched it, um, but even watching it with no words, or at least a little like, uh, man, I was still just moved. Something about little baby feet reminds me. uh, I'm a new father. My little boy is about a year and a half old, and and I think the idea of the sanctity of life uh, has just expanded exponentially as I've raised my own child. And so uh, we show that not only to kind of show you an organization that we're partnering with and your money goes to support, but also to, so you know if there's someone in your life who has a pregnancy that they're struggling with or was unplanned or, or they, they don't have support, whether it's emotionally or financially, uh, you can send them to open arms and they will take care of them. They just are so, so generous. Uh, But then also just to point out, uh, today is all about partnering with God on his mission. And, and we kind of want to brag on Open Arms a little bit, and this group of people who, in an organized fashion, many of them volunteers, are partnering with God on his mission. And so we're kind of bragging on them a little bit as, as we're kind of pointing our, our minds in that direction. Now, we are in a, a four-week series, today's the very last week, about prayer. We're calling it 28 Days of Prayer. It started on January 7th, and then it is going to conclude on February 4th, I believe, February 3rd, somewhere around there. And what we're doing is we, we've chosen to, the last couple of years, start every year by recalculating celebrating our lives to emotional presence and and, um, spiritual presence with God. And we simply in the Christian tradition call that prayer, right? conversing with. And so in the same way that when you want to be connected to someone important to you, you sit down in the room with them, you converse with them, you listen to them, that is what prayer is. And so we want to orient our lives around the habits of connection and prayer with God. So we've chosen to do that through four teachings about four themes. The first was a teaching about God's glory. The second one was about our surrender and how good it is to surrender to the mercy of God. And then the third week last week was... um, spreading the fame of Jesus, or or the fact that the fame of Jesus is a really, really good thing, and today is partnering with God on his mission. And The the sermons, and you'll you'll feel this today, it's it's not really about prayer. We're not teaching you how to pray. Um, We do have a little prayer guide. Uh, These are, if you don't have one yet, there's two little black carts on the left and the right of the room. You can grab one at any point right now if you want. And what these are is a tool to help guide you in prayer. The uh, left-hand side has the passage that we've gone through and it breaks it down day by day and it looks at different chunks. And so you can, at the beginning or end of every day or lunch break, pick that day's theme out of the text and that will guide you in prayer. The right-hand side is some notes for the sermon. So the sermon is not necessarily how to pray. It's more uh, expanding some of the ideas of things that both uh, we can pray for, but then also things that lead us into prayer. The idea of partnering with God's mission is something I can pray for. Lord, help me partner with you. Lord, what is my role in your mission? I can be praying for that. I pray for um, open arms. I pray for you know whatever these organizations or people you know of are. You pray for the people in your life. But also... You guys know this. If you've ever tried to live missionally, doing that very quickly leads you to the realization you need help. Yeah. Jesus, I need your power. I need your guidance. I need your wisdom. And so as we, we are praying for mission, and then as we engage in mission, it also leads us into prayer. So uh, Jason just read our passage out of Acts chapter 4, uh, so I'm going to not read that for you. Um, but what you'll see in that is this is a group of people they, they all got together, they lifted one voice to God, and they prayed for conviction and boldness as they were, as a community, desiring to um, participate in God's mission. Now, God's mission, that little phrase can feel pretty vague, right? A little bit hard to put your fingers on. So if it helps, for the rest of today, you can think about it like this. This is from Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer. We are partnering with God in bringing his kingdom and his will to earth as it is in heaven. We want God's reign and presence and intentions to be on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to have a hand in that, <clears throat> both in our own lives and the way we live outwardly. When it comes to kingdom, you can think of that as God's presence, where he actually is. Think of God's presence, his authority, and his way of doing things, right? That's what a king does. A king dictates and gets to say, here's how this works. Here are the rules and the decrees and the ways of good living, right? The king gets to say how things are done. So our participation means we help people see and know God through Jesus in the gospel. We help reveal God's kingdom through the person of Jesus. God's will on earth, a helpful way for me, is to think of his intention. So the way that we do things are the way that he intends things be done. That means the poor receive care. It means the unclean receive welcome. It means that the alien become family that the grace overcomes bitterness and forgiveness overcomes sin. That is the way Jesus would have it done on earth as is in heaven. Now, I wanna actually start today in a bit of a weird place. <laughs> Thanks, Mark, I'm glad you enjoyed that. I wanna actually start in Psalm one and two uh, because for, for two reasons. Uh, the first is the, the disciples were praying a large portion, a very important portion of, important portion of Psalm two. Why do the Gentiles rage in vain? But Psalm 2 is actually paired with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and 2 are this paired opening to the whole book of Psalms, which is a book of prayer and songs. And so I want to look at Psalm 1 and 2 as a pair, because it's kind of important we understand that so we know what the disciples are praying and where they're drawing this inspiration from. And then, um, because Psalm 1 and 2 are this pair that talks about a human way of living, And if I was going to point us back to the thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what it's pointing to is there's a Psalm 1 kind of person that is intending your kingdom come, your will be done, and they delight in the law and the instruction of the Lord. And then there's another way of being that mocks and scoffs the way of the Lord and is saying, my will be done, my kingdom come. And so I think it opens and explains all of what we see in Acts, the the whole book of Acts. The whole book of Acts is about a group of people saying, we delight in the law of the Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So uh, we've already read Psalm 2, so I'm not going to read that again. Uh, Jason read it as a call to worship. Um, But I do want to read just Psalm 1. It's real quick. Would you turn with me there if you've got it open? I'm going to read it right now. So if you don't want to turn there or if you're not able, um, I'm just going to read it. This is Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, notice that word, delight. Not only obedience, not only formal submission, but delight. Delight is in the law or the instruction of the Lord. And on his law or his instruction, He meditates day and night. He is like a tree that's planted by streams of water. It yields fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked aren't so, but the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So why do the nations rage in vain? Why do the peoples plot in vain? And then it goes on, this idea of organized opposition to the kingdom of God is what Psalms 2 goes on to describe. So the reason these are a bit of a pair is Psalm 1 is talking about an individual, an individual who delights in the law and the instruction and the words, not only the word, but the words and the presence of God. And it, it creates this contrast of an individual who delights in God's presence versus an individual who rejects and scoffs and, and delights in wickedness. Psalm 2 goes on to talk about a group of people. A group of people who have organized themselves to say, we do not want the bonds and the instructions of God. We do not want his kingdom or his reign. We will organize ourselves to get our way. And I want to point out just the end of Psalm 2 again. It says therefore o kings be wise be warned o rulers of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled but blessed are all who take refuge in him This is an invitation for as harsh as it might sound in our modern language it's an invitation to not organize ourselves against him, but to let go some of what we're fighting for and to come underneath him in delightful submission. So this is what we see played out in the book of Acts. Thanks for letting me introduce that. I know that was a bit of a a left turn. But what you're going to see for the rest of the book of Acts is some people, uh, they they pivot and they, they once were walking in ways of wickedness, but they hear the gospel of Jesus and they pivot into humble faith and delight in the law and the instruction of God. You'll see that in Acts as we read today. But what you'll also see in Acts is people who hear the gospel and they go, uh-uh. And they organize themselves into dangerous opposition. But what you see Jesus' as people do is they continue to partner with God on his mission in the face of the danger and in this organized opposition. And they continue to proclaim God's presence, God's love, God's forgiveness, and the self-sacrificing king, Jesus. So where I'd like to move next is actually to tell you quite a bit of context. Can I tell you the story of Acts chapter 1 through 4? I feel like it explains the prayer. Can I do that real quick? Great. Thank you. I felt bad putting that rhetorical question in there, but it seemed like a good transition. (laughs) Here is, uh, just starting in Acts chapter 1, I'm going to like fly real fast. If you want to follow along in the text, that's great, but I'm going to move pretty quick. Acts picks up where the gospels leave off. So the gospels leave off where Jesus has given himself sacrificially in death to take on the consequence that humanity deserves. He dies, lies in the grave for three days, but is resurrected at the third day by his father. He conquers sin and death and opens up a new doorway into eternal life for anyone who will come to him in his name. That's where the Gospels leave off. Acts picks up where this now resurrected Jesus is hanging out with his friends. He's eating food. He's doing sleepovers, and he's continuing to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, that this way is now open to anyone through his name and his death and resurrection. And as he's doing that, he spends about 40 days with his disciples. And during this time, he he says um, he says to his disciples, "Don't go anywhere yet, because." He's uh, asked them to partner on his mission, and they're like, great, we're ready. But he says, not yet. I need you to wait, and I need you to stay in Jerusalem. I know you're eager for partnership, but I need you to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Something about the Holy Spirit is very, very important. Don't start and don't go without it. And then the day of Jesus' ascension comes. He's going to rise from, heaven, or from earth and go return to heaven to be with his Father. And his disciples are like, Great the day of the ascension. So is is this when the kingdom of God comes? Is it coming right now? And Jesus says, surprisingly, like really surprisingly, it's not for you to know. It's, It's clearly not today, but the day is not for you to know. But I do want you to know this. In a very short while, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, I want you to be my witnesses in this city, in this region, and to the ends of the earth. So this group of disciples stays in Jerusalem. Jesus ascends and is now with them through the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you more about that in chapter two, but where I wanna leave off the big things in chapter one is this incredibly like unavoidable gift of a new identity to all of Jesus's followers. He says, you are my witnesses. This is who you are now. Jesus gives a ton of new identities and gifts. He he makes us children. He makes us co-heirs of the kingdom. He makes us holy and beloved. But one of the things he gives us is the new identity of witnesses. We're meant to witness, to tell of Jesus. And he promises that we will not be alone, but he will be with us to the ends of the age and he will send his Holy Spirit to empower us. It's really important that we know that is the context of the beginning of Acts. As we get into Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is actually a Jewish festival. uh, And so uh, the penta, if you think pentagram, right, five-sided, it is 50 days after the day of Passover. That's why it's called penta, 50 days after. Um, And uh, because this is a Jewish festival, all of Jesus' disciples are hanging out. They're, They're together for this Jewish feast day. And while they're together, all of a sudden, this incredible rushing wind blows through the doors, and, and there's these spiritual presences of fire hovering over these disciples. and there's an incredibly loud noise as, as there's wind and fire, and then all of a sudden, at the direction of the spirit, all of these disciples start pro, they start talking about Jesus in foreign languages they didn't know before. This is this incredibly bizarre evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. And all this chaos draws a crowd not only the noise of the wind and the presence of fire, but now also the shouting of the proclamation of Jesus in in foreign languages. So this crowd gets together, what is going on? And Peter stands up and says, hey, I know this looks crazy, don't worry. No one's been drinking, it's 9 a.m. This is supernatural evidence of the presence of God. And then he goes on to give the very first gospel proclamation since Jesus. Jesus. He tells everyone who's listening about this man, Jesus, and the way he substituted himself for humanity, and and his intentions to come again to bring everyone into eternal life. And what's crazy here is Peter's sermon is so on point both to the the Hebrew scriptures, as well as to the hearts of the men and the women present. And the Holy Spirit is so evident and moving that 3,000 people, 3,000 people get saved in one day. After that, the the disciples continue to be Psalms one kind of people. They continue to delight in the law of the Lord. They have favor with everyone around them. And day by day, God adds more and more to the number. So I tie this back to Psalm 1 and 2, because I want us to look, consider, would you say that the disciples in this process are delighting in the instruction of God through Jesus to live as witnesses? We can interpret Psalm 1 to only be that our delight is in the law of the Lord, but I think it's also fair and right to expand that, that when Jesus says, my instruction is you serve as witnesses to the ends of the earth that these disciples are the kind of people that they don't only delight in the law, but they delight in the instruction that you are witnesses. And to their, I would assume, imaginable delight, they get to see more than 3,000 people saved through their Psalm 1 kind of living. I would argue they have become planted, fruitful, flourishing people and they've created a community that is planted and faithful and flourishing because of that, because they are delighting that they are the witnesses of Jesus through the ends of the earth. Now that brings us to chapter three, where we see this move into more of like kind of one-on-one situation. Peter, one of the, the primary disciples and John, they, they're going to the temple and they're going to witness Jesus to the temple. And on their way, they, they see a lame man at one of the gates entering the temple. And this guy, he says, hey, 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 could you, could you give me some cash, please? Peter and John, they're disciples of Jesus, they're kind of homeless, so they don't have a lot of cash, so they say, hey, we don't have silver, we don't have gold, but what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this man, the text tells us, has been a crippled for 40 years, since birth. He's not walked a day in his life. And because he's been crippled for so long, and he's been in Jerusalem for so long, that is his spot, right there at that gate. That's where he goes. And so all these Jewish people, every day or every week, whatever it is, as they're going into the temple, they see the same guy. And they start to recognize him. Maybe some of the nice ones take him out to coffee every once in a while and and give him some time. But but they know him. And all of a sudden, these crowds see, I'm going to call him Mike, I don't know. Mike, the guy who's been there asking for alms every single week, is now jumping And and the text tells us that he's jumping and leaping and shouting for joy, and he's praising God. And at one point, he falls on his knees and holds on to the disciples, saying, thank you, thank you, praise be to God. I'm adding some embellishment, but it's it's there if you you read between the lines. And these crowds are starting to freak out because what's happened? There's this clear evidence of the power of God. So Peter, never one to miss an opportunity, what do you think he does? Grabs a milk crate, stands up, can I tell you about Jesus? And he goes on to say, this isn't me. This is the the saving power of God through the name of Jesus. And he goes on to proclaim to this crowd, the crowd's amped up. They're worshiping God, and they're actually believing in the resurrected Jesus. Now, there's one problem. Some of the people that are are governing this temple are Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees are uh, a group of Jews who theologically say that it is impossible or that it's not God's intention to raise people from the dead. They say, theologically, resurrection is impossible. So clearly, Jesus is impossible because God would never raise Jesus from the dead. And so they have this uh, theological disagreement with the anointed one of God, much less his resurrection. A fun uh, name thing, if you guys like to remember names, a professor of mine taught me this. Uh, The Sadducees, if you want to remember that they did not believe in the resurrection, you can remember it like this. They did not believe in the resurrection, therefore they were sad, you see, you're welcome. So chapter four comes. The Sadducees get the guard uh, of the temple and they arrest Peter and John because of all this ruckus and the, the bad theology that they're preaching. And, and so they, they uh, hold them overnight against their will. They bring them before the council, uh, before the, the elders and the priests and the rulers of the temple. And they are amazed at the boldness and the competency of Peter and John. And yet they say, we don't agree with you. We cannot argue with Mike, right? They know Mike too. Every day into the office, they pass Mike. They know, they say, we cannot argue with the supernatural evidence in front of us. We can't even argue with the the, the mind-blowing boldness and competency that you handle the scriptures, but we don't agree, stop it. Are you starting to see Psalm 2, organized intentional opposition to the will and the kingdom of God? Now, this part I love, Peter, he's way more bold than I am. Peter gets up and he says, all right, you tell us. Should we listen to you or God? Now, that's a trick question when you, when you tell that to a priest, right? Should we listen to you or God? The, the rulers don't know what to do, so they, they send Peter and John home, and they say, yeah, 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 but really, though, please be quiet. All of this catches us up to... Uh, Chapter 4, verse 23. This is why when the passage we read opens with when they were released. All that is what's been happening the couple of weeks prior to this moment. When they were released, they went to their friends, uh, went to the other believers, and they told them all that the elders and the rulers had said. Or excuse me, they reported the chief priests and the elders had said. Now, in this particular moment, I, I like to imagine this in, in real life terms, right? If, if we were Christians in this moment and we were together, Peter and John go out on a Thursday and they're gonna go preach in the temple. Great, we're really excited. And then Peter and John never show up. They're gone. They're missing for 24 hours. No one knows what's happened to them. And then all of a sudden, Peter and John come back, bak, bak, bak. guys, you would not believe what just happened. And they go on and, and, and the lame man in the name of Jesus and he rose and we preached and then, and then we got arrested. And the food was really bad. And so anyways, I play all this out in my mind and I get to the point, this is all colorful commentary for my own sake. This is, they get to the point where Peter and John look at the rulers and they say, and guess what we told them? We said, is it better for us to listen to you or to God? Oh, that was a pickle, wasn't it? And I think of the real life response to that. You know, I think of myself, I kind of like to uh, please authority and I like to avoid conflict. How many of you conflict avoiders in here? If your buddy came in and said, guess what I told the principal? Guess what I said? I said, should I listen to you or God? Me, I kind of like, you said what? You said what right to them? They were gonna let you go, just go. But then I think of some of you guys who are like my lion hearts in the room, right? My justice oriented, fiery folks, who's who's that is you? You guys are different. You're like, you said what? Go get them, right? You guys are right in here. Go, Peter, you tell them. All of that just makes me remember, this is a real life group of people who are undergoing very real life opposition. Some of them would have been scared to death. Other ones of them would have been like, oh, we're gonna get them. We're gonna get them, right? But this real life people was encountering real life opposition. And this diverse group of personalities responded to this opposition by praying together. Tells us that in, they lifted their voices together. They lifted their voices together in one room, and, and maybe it was one person praying for them, or maybe this was the theme of their prayer. We don't totally know, but what they prayed was sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 2, Why do the Gentiles rage? And why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And truly, in this city, Jerusalem, now they're bringing it into their immediate context gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, the one you anointed, there was Herod, the Jewish ruler, there was Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, along with all the Gentiles, those who were non-Israeli, and the peoples of Israel. They were there together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're saying, God, you were sovereign. You knew what was gonna happen, even in their opposition. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, but grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you, notice the partnership here, grant that we speak your words with boldness while you are partnered with us or we're partnered with you, stretching out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed and through the name of your Holy Spirit, Jesus. And it ends by saying the place was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to partner with God to speak the word of God with boldness. In the face of this organized opposition, they ask for boldness, and partnership with the Spirit. They're praying for the courage to spread Jesus' fame, if you were here last week, to spread Jesus' fame in partnership with God's Spirit. Now, that was a lot of narrative. Thanks for bearing with with all that context, but I feel like it's important for us to not just pull out some small things, but to understand the whole and to be moved by the whole story of these real-life people who are delighting in the instruction of the Lord. So can I pull that together in just a couple minutes into seven or eight points that I think summarize uh, some takeaways for us? Sound good? First, if we take Acts chapter one uh, seriously, I think we can uh, pull out that taking Jesus seriously means living missionally. If we take Jesus seriously, it means we will live missionally. We will see ourselves as witnesses and partners with God to the end's of the earth. Like I said, Jesus gives us a ton of incredible gifts of identity, and I would love for us to see the identity of witness as a gift. It's not, here's a bunch of gifts, oh, and one real big liability. You got to go be my witnesses. This is a gift. He's saying, you get to go into all the nations and proclaim the forgiveness of sins, the welcome of the unclean, that there's something more, uh, more powerful than evil in the world and you get to remind yourself and your brothers and your sisters and everyone who will listen that that is true. My heart needs to hear that. And I think it is a gift because there's nothing better than telling people about unimaginable grace and forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. There's no other message that I would rather carry for the rest of my life. My second point is that living missionally means celebrating gospel chaos. I got this uh, language from Jared gospel chaos. If you look at uh, chapters one through four, and and if you kind of keep reading, it just does not follow a plan. No one is sitting down with a master strategy saying, okay, A, B, C, D, E. It It requires so much flexibility. And I would argue it should be celebrated. Now, I'm not saying that the apostles or we or the disciples should be incompetent or disorganized, not at all. But if I look at all that these disciples have experienced, Jesus having died, having come back to life, going to heaven, the Holy Spirit coming, people speaking in foreign languages, 3,000 people joining a church in one night. Where do they go? Whose small group do they join? All of a sudden, people are selling their belongings to take care of one another. Their leaders and pastors are being thrown in prison. That requires a ton of flexibility and a ton of open-handedness for letting the Spirit move and a ton, a ton, a ton of faith now, awareness of this reality, I think, protects us from two small things that I think are very relevant for us. The first is celebrating gospel chaos uh, protects us from romanticizing mission. It's really easy to say, oh, man, good luck on your missionary journey, and you're going to be with the Africans, and it's going to be amazing, and the Spirit's going to be with you, and then it comes to be really, really hard. Or you might know, oh, man, I'm going to be missional, and I'm going to go talk to my neighbors, and then your neighbors just do not like you. Real quick story, real life. Whitney and I, uh, this Christmas, baked Christmas cookies. And we wanted to go around to our neighbors and just say, hey, we just wanted to say hi, build some relationship, extend some bridges. One of our neighbors, knock, knock, knock. We're waiting. Knock, knock, knock. We're waiting. Uh, really unfortunately, this uh, lady opens the door. No solicitors. No, we're not selling anything. We're your neighbors. We're giving you cookies. I said, no solicitors. Boom. That was not like the pretty version of mission (laughs) that we thought of, right? Oh, we're going to go give cookies. It's going to be amazing. So it protects us from romanticizing it while also getting our hearts in the game in the long run. It also protects us from scripting it. Do you think any of these disciples could have scripted all these interactions? No. They were competently filled with the Spirit, they knew their scriptures, they were giving themselves over to the fellowship and the study of the word and, and being obedient in the long run. But they did not have a here's the five points gospel presentation. Sometimes those are helpful. I think they're really helpful. I've, my, our gospel community practiced it. I've incorporated it, but we cannot. Sometimes it's really easy to say, okay, let's bring in the trainer. And they're, they're gonna teach us the script, and then we're gonna be able to do all the things. Sometimes it's just real unhelpful. And we gotta get out there and build relationships, listen to the Spirit, and proclaim the gospel boldly and gently. My next point, living missionally will come with opposition and rejection, Inarguably. Psalms 2 tells us that there are people organized in opposition. You might experience that individually, you know, the grumpy neighbor or the person who says, I just don't want anything to do with Jesus. No, please stop. But you also might encounter that organized, with authority, with power, and with lethal intent. I don't think that's where we're at in America right now, but it is a reality in the world and throughout all of the gospel history. Opposition will come externally, like I said, through uh, individuals and opponents. And and there's an unhelpful version of that that turns into us versus them. Have you guys ever felt that or been disappointed by that? turns into us versus them Christianity. And what happens to us in those moments is we become superior and rude and mean when it's us versus them. So as a church, I would just ask, can we avoid that, please? There is a very true reality to the gospel, It is us and them. You're either for God and for Christ or you're not. Whether you're like violently opposed or just kind of ambivalent, you're either in the kingdom of the sun or you're in the kingdom of darkness. But what Jesus seems to present in his gospels and in his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount is not us versus them, but us for them. There is a difference, there is us and them, but we are for them, not versus them. And I believe this prayer out of Acts chapter four teaches us how we can know there is us and them opposition, but then we respond with faithfulness and boldness to proclaim salvation to them, and we ask God to heal them. Internally, there is opposition. And I think there are some very real challenges for Christians, both in general, also more specifically in the West and also more specifically here at All of Life Church. I think some challenges ahead of us is just fear, right? scary. It's scary when things are uncontrolled and relationships are on the line. So I think it's helpful just to acknowledge, fear's there and it's an internal opponent to our participation. Another challenge for us is just whole life orientation. I feel this, I don't know if you do. um, One foot in, one foot out. I want the kingdom of Jesus, and I also don't really want the hassle of it. That is a real challenge and barrier for us that we need to come to terms with. Is it present in our lives? And do we desire, over time, with a ton of grace, to take one foot out of the world and put both feet planted firmly in the kingdom of God? Another challenge we have is just lack of formation. It requires competency and knowledge and an indwelling of the Spirit to to share the gospel well. And so can we do this as amateurs? Absolutely. But also we need to be formed to be people of the word, people of the spirit. And one of the challenges in our Western culture in general and I think here in all of life is we're like chasing Jesus but haven't necessarily been transformed in all of the ways that we live. And part of that, another challenge for us is just lack of leadership in this area, both in in formation as well as in mission. As a church, we've talked about this. As leaders, we've acknowledged this. One of the ways we've not led very great and, and we wanna grow in is leading our church missionally. We've, we've preached on it and we talk about it every once in a while, but we've not like moved in a, a long-term sustained way towards everyday discipleship and everyday missional living. We preach the gospel, we do a lot of great things, but we've recognized this is just one of the ways that we've not done as well as we'd like. And for that, I'm sorry, and I think our other pastors here are sorry. And with that, I just want to acknowledge there's individual ownership and group ownership. You know, we each are responsible for ourselves. Can't pawn that off on the church and the leaders, but as a church and leaders, we do have a role and we recognize that. Another challenge for us, and I'll be done with challenges here, (laughs) is we just forget the joy and the privilege of this. It becomes an obligation and I think we lose momentum. We forget that the gospel transforms lives. Someone in our church that I've really enjoyed getting to know is Jeremy Glees. Jeremy, would you raise your hand? Sorry, buddy. Sorry to put you on spot. Jeremy just got baptized on Christmas Eve. As I've gotten to know Jeremy as friends, he's shared more and more of his story, and I've got to experience more and more of his transformation. And, and what has happened is, is his story has put gas in my tank. My, my interest in spreading the gospel, my belief that it does something, how it was doing this. And, I, and, I, and these stories of real life transformation, like, oh yeah, this is amazing, and it gets me back in, and I think we need to celebrate the stories of transformation to give us gas in the tank. My last uh, challenge for us is the, the difference between perfection versus progress. A lot of us want to go out, and the very first time we do something, it's an A++, right? Rather than saying, hey, I'm going to try this, and I'm probably not very great, and I might get a D-, minus but I turned in the homework, right? And next time I'm gonna get a D plus and hopefully next time a C. And at some point I'm gonna be able to do this well. I know my gospel community over about a year, we've been building each other up in the practice of praying for strangers and praying for people we meet uh, in random moments. And it has been a while for me to develop that. And I felt real sloppy in it. I've gotten more and more comfortable, but that's taken a willingness to give up perfection and stumble around a whole lot, and just be willing to take the journey of progress. My next point is that living missionally requires boldness. You saw this all over the passage. Boldness, boldness, boldness. Whether you, like Peter, are shouting in a crowd, standing before ruling authorities, telling them off, or you're willing to speak up in a one-on-one setting, we need courage and boldness. Both of those are scary. And so like the disciples, we need to ask for boldness. Jesus, would you give us boldness? Continue our boldness. And then we get to decide to act out of that boldness and develop it, just like my gospel community and praying for people. Little steps of boldness developed over time get easier and easier and easier. Quick note on boldness, if I may. Boldness is always meant to serve the mission rather than being an end in itself. When we are bold for boldness' sake, we become know it all loudmouths. And that's super unhelpful. Boldness in Jesus' life was patient, gentle, humble, wise, and very appropriate when need be. So that is the type of boldness that we're pointing ourselves at. My next point that living missionally requires community and prayer. The very first thing that Peter and John did after being released. They knew they needed community, and they knew they needed prayer. So they gathered together with disciples. When they were put under pressure, when the whole group was put under pressure, and you'll see this all throughout Acts, they find strength, conviction, and power by being together. And they all turn toward prayer, and then they pray together. If you're anything like me, you know that when we are alone, it's really easy to get confused and compromised and to feel really stuck and depressed. And hopefully you've experienced when you bring that before people who love you and love the Lord, that you find yourself all of a sudden receiving support and clarity and, and healthy strengthening conviction and boldness, and it gets us out of our funk. We need community and we need prayer. As a church, we do have gospel communities that we, or small groups that we call gospel communities. If, you, uh, if that's one of the ways you would like to find community, we help facilitate that. You can fill out a connect card, drop it in the giving box in the back. Next point is that living missionally requires the Spirit. Jesus himself told his followers, don't start the mission until I send you my Spirit. So we, as his right now people, need to regularly come to the Spirit for guidance and presence and power. And we see in this prayer that the disciples wanted boldness. They wanted to continue in boldness, but they also said, Lord, we need your Spirit. We need you to extend your hand to be present with us, we cannot do this without you. One thing that Acts shows us is that the presence of the Spirit is not always visible, it is not always miraculous, and it, is not always, it does not always look like success. The whole tale of the book of Acts is sometimes people who are filled with the Spirit get killed. Sometimes people who are filled with the Spirit get thrown out and beat up. Sometimes they get thrown in prison Sometimes their family rejects them and abandons them. And it is so comforting to me to to know that what oftentimes looks like failure from an outside perspective is filled with the presence of the Spirit. It is not alone. The Spirit has not abandoned people in hardship. But as they go through hardship, He is filling them and with them. My second to last point is that living missionally is not vague. Anyone feel the vagueness creeping back in as we're talking about all this? It feels really hard. How do I do? How do I, how do I step in? My understanding of the best way to think of missional living is thinking of everyday discipleship. It's not adding on more of the, the like third-party software of spirituality onto my life, but it is saturating my everyday with the gospel of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit. So when I go to the gym, I'm saying, Spirit, be with me. What do you have for me while I'm at the gym? When I'm going to work, I'm saying, spirit, what do you have for me here? When I am taking care of my kids, spirit, what do you have for me here? And there will be times of intentional go out of your way mission, absolutely. But we cannot leave behind the everyday mission. And so with that, I just wanna celebrate some real life stories here at All of Life to remind you and paint a picture of what everyday mission and partnering with God's mission is. Last summer, uh, Mark Valdez and Matt Salcido, two dudes in a DNA group, wanted to spread the gospel, so they bought a case of Costco water bottles, went to the park and and gave people water bottles and asked to pray for them. That was missional living. Jason Buckingham plays in a pickup frisbee league. It's fun, it's good for his cardio, yes, but he also goes there because he gets to hear people's stories and to pray for them and to take them out to dinner. That is missional living. Whitney Zychek quit her job at the hospital to work for a nonprofit home nursing care where she gets to spend three-plus hours with people, caring for them, knowing their story, and praying with them. That is missional living. Jared and Meredith Lyda planted All of Life Church and have been running hard for eight-plus years. That is missional living. Wayne and Ashley Lockman have been opening their home to groups of disciples for like four years now. Every single week, almost. That is missional living. Joanne Zychek, Tracy Nunez, and Jeremy Stevens gave up their careers and work at Union Gospel Mission, a place that cares for the homeless. That is missional living. Bonnie Stevens developed an in home counseling care practice where she gets to care for women and point them to the gospel. That is missional living. Kurt Elmer regularly installs furnaces and fixes things and does appliances usually for free, all for missional living. Keith Johnson is a traveling salesman, and when he goes to conferences, I've had this conversation with him, he prays in advance that the Spirit would give him opportunity to share the gospel with his coworkers and with his fellow uh, industrial peers. That is missional living. Bowman Crago works for Absolute Absolute Ministries. It's a recovery center. He goes and visits the jail just for fun to get to know guys like Jeremy. That is missional living. Mayors Everett, a member of our community group, um, some people back home uh, are are foreigners. They're they're from out of town. They're refugees. And she decided to learn Spanish just so she could help them translate and navigate every life, everyday life. Learn in a second language just to help some folks. That is missional living. My last point is that living missionally is totally, totally worth it. Psalm one and two remind us of what a good life is. They say, blessed is the person who delights in God's instruction, who meditates on it day and night. They will be sustained, nourished, refreshed. They will be flourishing and fruitful. And the history of the early church in Acts shows us that even in the midst of organized opposition, everyday followers of Jesus experience joy and fullness as they follow Jesus and take him seriously to live on mission. Can I share one more story with you? I know I'm going a little bit long. Can I share one more? This prayer in Acts was started because a group of Jesus' followers prayed for a man who was crippled. So it seemed appropriate for me to share a story about a group of Jesus' followers who prayed for a man who was crippled in Quarterly, Idaho. Uh, I'm part of a youth network where about once a month, some of the local youth pastors get together and we encourage each other and study and share stories. And Heart of the City Church, uh, my, one of my friends who's a youth pastor there, his name's Logan, was telling me this story. This was from a year and a half ago, summer camp. They were sharing this, um, they, they had all these kids together for summer camp. And one of the, the members of their youth group who went to the summer camp, um, I don't remember his name, uh, had been a crippled since he was born. He was a 17-year-old high schooler had been crippled before he was born. His, there was some sort of genetic um, error, deformity, where his legs didn't have the proper nerve endings to control his legs. So he had not walked a day in his life since he was 17 years old, or as up to 17 years old. And this group of high schoolers at summer camp decide to pray for him. And they pray for him, and they pray for him, and they pray for him. And all of a sudden his legs start tingling. And they pray for him and they, they grab Logan and they're like, Logan, we need you to help pray for us. And they're, they're praying and they're praying and praying and all of a sudden his legs start feeling like like down to his toes. You're starting to get some tingling. And they pray for him and they pray for him and they pray for him. And all of a sudden, this kid gets up and walks. He hadn't walked for seven, a day in his life. And he got up and walked in Coeur Idaho. As Logan tells this story, Next Wednesday night, he was playing flag football. Would you raise your hand if that sounds too good to be true? Would you raise your hand if you're just a little bit skeptical? If you are, I'm dead serious right now. Come talk to me, I will give you Logan's phone number. You can talk to a first-hand witness of this. I will give you his phone number. Now, raise your hand that if this is true, you want in on it. If this is true, you want in on it. Would you stand up? And we're gonna have a time of corporate prayer as we lift our voices to God that ask that we'd be filled with the spirit and boldness and join him in partnership with his mission. We've been ending each of our weeks with corporate prayer because prayer is not just something that I do between me and God, but we do, like we see in Acts, where we pray for boldness and spirit. So as we pray, here's just a couple things to guide you. Um, You can pray for yourself, absolutely. If there's someone standing next to you, you can pray for them. You can lay a hand on their shoulder if you would like. But when we experience resistance and opposition, whether it's inside of us, our own skepticism or external individual or group opposition, we want to follow this example with community and prayer. I needed to hear Logan's story to remind me. I needed to hear that story. You probably needed to hear that story. We need to hear each other's stories to put gas in the tank. So right now, would you pray for gas in the tank and stories? Would you pray against the resistances that feel most pertinent to you? The resistance, whatever it might be, fear, embarrassment, perfectionism, lack of formation, whatever it is. And would you pray for an orientation toward God's power and his presence and his purpose and that we would be filled as a community with boldness and love for one another. As you pray... Um, you can do that loud, you can do that quiet. This isn't popcorn prayer, so we're gonna kind of all go for it. Um, I'm gonna pray for, for you and myself up here. We're gonna take about 60 to 90 seconds. That might feel a little bit long. That's what we're gonna do. Um, Father, as we pray together, I ask that you would give us boldness, even in this moment, that we would pray boldly and pray, be willing to pray loudly, boldly, whatever that might be, for the, the timid hearts of us. Would you make us bold lion hearts as we pray right now? Jesus, there is organized opposition to you. There are people who plot against you and therefore your people. Uh, Psalms 2 reminds us it is in vain. It's in vain. You, the king, are powerful and all who take shelter, who come behind you, receive comfort and care and protection. So would you help us do that as we go out into the world that when opposition comes, it will. We do that with boldness behind you. Boldness behind you as you extend your hand to heal and do signs and wonders. Would you grow our faith and conviction as a church? Would you uh, give us imagination for everyday missional living? And would you, um, Spirit, I just ask right now, would you remove the, or, or give us awareness of, and gospel truth around those thoughts that tell us, one, Jesus isn't gonna do anything. Two, you're not good enough to participate. Spirit, would you fill us? Would you teach us your gospel first to our own hearts, that in the overflow of your spirit and your truth, it would then move on to others. Would you help us be gentle with yourselves and bold as lions? Amen.